You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy. Natural gas. Energy infrastructure. Solar power. Wind turbines. The fact that India can do it means that countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh and the Philippines are looking at that and going, well, if India can do it, why can't we? And the answer is, they can. One of the things I always tell people about India is that there's never a single reason for anything. It's always a combination. It's complicated. It's messy. It's confused. For June 28th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is part two of our three-and-a-half-hour interview with Mohua Mukherjee, a senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Previously, she was a development economist and project manager who worked in over 40 countries during her long career with the World Bank, during which time she led their solar energy program in India from 2014 to 2017. In part one of this interview, which we featured in episode 199, we discussed the overall energy mix in India, we explored the dynamics of the coal power sector, we took a deep dive into the solar power sector, including India's innovative financing strategy leveraging a World Bank loan, and we concluded with a look at the wind power sector. In this second part, we talk about India's use of oil and natural gas, including why they are continuing to buy oil from Russia, even as the West eschews it. We explore India's unique approach to transitioning mobility to vehicles running on electricity and CNG. We discuss India's strategy for building domestic industries for manufacturing batteries, solar, hydrogen electrolyzers, and other clean technologies. We review the country's astonishing progress in improving access to electricity for its massive population. We consider the challenges that its electricity distribution utilities face and how they are trying to improve efficiency. And we end with a discussion of India's progress on its climate initiatives and the essential task of ensuring a just transition as the country winds down its dependence on coal-fired power. Then in the news segment, we'll look at the expectations for hot weather increasing coal demand in Southeast Asia this summer. We'll salute the new head of the World Bank and see what kinds of fresh demands he's facing to mobilize more capital toward climate solutions in developing countries. We'll explicate a curious statement from Poland's grid operator. We'll update the story on the EPA's efforts to regulate power plant emissions. And we'll check out a new report on VPPs. But before we go to the interview, we'd like to welcome our latest group subscriber. Shift Action for Pension Wealth and Planet Health is a charitable initiative that works to educate and empower Canadians on how to engage constructively with their pension funds to address the climate crisis. We're so pleased to have them on board. And now the second half of our interview with Mohua Mukherjee, recorded April 19th, 2023. All right, well, let's talk now about oil. Now, there are <laughs> enough dimensions on this topic to fill a whole show on its own. So, you know, I'm sorry to have to ask you to answer these questions in such a short format here, especially after already an hour and a half of conversation. But displacing oil is one of the most important and difficult tasks of the energy transition. And so I feel like we really have to address it. And we can't address that without talking about the Russian context, because that's what it's kind of all about right now. So for starters... Can you explain the thinking in India about continuing to buy Russian oil when the rest has done all it can to eliminate their use of Russian oil? I mean, we did 
a whole long show about that back in episode 171, and we don't need to revisit the various ways that the West has been going about that. But I'm very curious about the internal politics of continuing to use Russian oil in India. Surely, this does not indicate that Indians are indifferent to Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Yeah, that's right. It does not at all indicate indifference in India to the plight of the Ukrainians. And as you said, this is a huge topic. And in fact, I did an entire interview on this topic too, regarding India's decision to ramp up its purchases of oil from Russia in 2022. There's a link, I think, if anybody wants to hear that. So it's important to remember that every refinery in India arranges for its own crude oil purchases, some in the spot market and some through competitive tenders. So there is no central government directive telling people where to buy oil from. So from Russia or from Iraq or from Saudi Arabia or whatever, that's not coming from the central government. But yes, in this gray area, under the threat of secondary sanctions, obviously there must have been some signals from the central government to Indian refineries indicating that it was okay for them to go ahead and make purchases from a supplier that had been called out by others. At the same time, let's also remember India's entire oil purchase from all its suppliers is only 5 million barrels per day. And of this, less than 2 million come from Russia. And just for comparison, the U.S. consumption is 20 million barrels per day. Right. So Europeans, in fact, continued to spend a lot more on oil and gas purchases from Russia throughout 2022 than India. So the data are publicly available. And I find that Indians don't get too rattled when they're asked about their oil purchases of basically under 2 million from Russia. But let me comment on the internal politics in India. So it's important to have some context, and in particular, two pieces of background to keep in mind. In 2018, India was pressured to stop importing oil from Iran by the Trump administration, which suddenly reimposed sanctions on Iran. And India was given a 12-month waiver to wind down oil purchases from Iran. India complied under the threat of secondary sanctions, but China did not comply, and nothing happened to them. Mm. So India expressed very strong internal regret, domestic politics, at having incurred the cost of halting purchases from Iran. And to compound matters, as the 12-month waiver was ending in May 2019, the U.S. government announced that Venezuelan oil was also under sanctions. Right. So this was another important supply source for India, and uh, there's no other way to put it. It was hugely irritating for the government to see domestic refineries lose another low-cost supplier. Because of sanctions imposed by the U.S. By the U.S., exactly. First on Iran, then on Venezuela. Yeah. So when prices rise because you lose your low-cost suppliers, the full increase in the retail price is often not passed on to the end customer in India. And the government has to absorb at least part of the losses from keeping retail prices affordable. Because if the oil prices were to suddenly shoot up, that would be inflationary. So the government would rather take that hit then let it go into the into the retail price. Yeah. So as low-cost suppliers were pushed out, government subsidies were going to rise and create fiscal impacts for the government and essentially mess up their own spending plans. So 
the Russian sanctions announcement of 2022 came after these two prior irritants. Okay, that's important context. Yeah, for the way that people were seeing this. It was like a real eye roll by that time. And then also, apart from being partners in the BRICS arrangement, India and Russia, this predates BRICS. They have a 20-year engagement already in the energy sector and in the defense sector. So when Russian crude oil was on offer to India for 30 to $40 less than the Brent price, this brought it back in line with the 70 to $75 per barrel price that the government's budget for this calendar year had called for. Because just two weeks or three weeks before the invasion, when all prices shot up, the Indian finance minister had presented a budget in which they had assumed that oil price and calculated their expenditures for different sectors based on a 70 to $75 price. So buying from Russia was bringing it back, allowing them to actually have that price. To meet their budget. Meet their budget, exactly. Yeah, okay. So it was very important and Given the number of other problems that emerged simultaneously for the government of India in 2022, including a spike in inflation rates that were mostly related to the global oil price, a very conscious decision was made that India would have to do what was good for India instead of running up and down at the bidding of others and hurting its own finances. Both the finance minister and the foreign minister said so in Mm. several public fora. India has a very high dependence on imported crude oil. 85% of its needs are imported. So it decided that it would purchase from Russia because it was cheaper to do so. And one little interesting thing that not many people know about, but it's been in the papers here, India also had an assurance from the U.S. that no sanctions would apply to it because the U.S. government noted that oil prices in the global spot market would rise even further if India were to be seeking an additional 5 million barrels per day of non-Russian crude, along with all the European buyers already in that queue. So uh, it was like, okay, India, you know, we will make some loud noises publicly of disapproval, but actually we like the fact that you're not raising prices even higher. Yeah, one example of many where on the face of it, the U.S., policy attitude toward the oil sector has seemed very hypocritical at times over the past year or two. But as you're pointing out, there's a real politic aspect to this, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's turn to the demand side of oil in India, because this is also a really interesting and I think fairly unique aspect to the Indian context and talk about the use of oil for transportation. Now, as I understand it, India is perhaps a bit unlike most other countries in that where it is substituting natural gas for oil is primarily in transportation, like swapping diesel vehicles for ones that run on compressed natural gas, or CNG, or liquefied petroleum gas, or LPG, rather than using gas to displace coal and power generation, like most of the rest of the world, like in the U.S. So why is that? Yeah, that's right. So as we mentioned, India imports 85% of its crude oil needs, and that's refined into petroleum. 
And by the way, it's the only major country where oil refining capacity is slated to increase between now and 2040. So India uses the refined petroleum and diesel both for domestic needs, and it also exports refined petroleum products all over the world, by the way. Hmm. And it includes selling large amounts of refined petroleum to Europe right now. And this doesn't violate sanctions because the petroleum going into Europe is not coming from Russia. It's coming from India. So I bet you may not have known this, but fully 10% of India's exports consist of refined petroleum products, such as petrol, diesel, motor spirits, and lubricants. Wow, you're right. I did not know that. <laughs> Considering that India has very minimal oil resources, so it's all the imported crude, and India sort of specializes in refining. Interesting. Yeah. So today, around 99% of the cars on India's roads are still running on internal combustion engines. So transportation is the predominant source of demand for petrol and diesel. And the, of course, the other source of demand for diesel would be to run generators for backup power supply right. during all these uh, unexpected blackouts and so on. And the government is sort of ultra sensitive about the oil import bill, particularly when the oil import bill goes up because spot market prices spike. So the oil import bill, which was 113 billion US dollars in 2022, is really driving the government's transport policy that wants more than anything else to cut back on oil imports quickly, hmm. because the Indian government spends nearly a quarter of its export revenues to buy oil. So it's like you do all this policy you export, you're happy to get all this foreign exchange flying in from your exports, and then with your other hand, you just pay it out again for oil. Right. So the government is very allergic to that. Yeah. So it's extremely keen to reduce this foreign exchange expenditure on oil, and therefore it's trying a range of alternative transportation fuels, such as CNG, LPG, battery electric vehicles, 10% blended ethanol with petrol, and it's also tightened fuel efficiency standards way ahead of schedule. So because it has a lot of coal, it sees coal as, that's running my electricity sector. Gas, we said already, was a problem in the electricity sector because regulated tariffs. So what is the greatest preoccupation of the Indian government is really the transport sector. So using natural gas in transport is something that they see has a much higher rate of return in the sense of avoided oil imports. Interesting. Yeah. So the question of natural gas is not used, we said, because of the tariffs, cannot exceed the specified levels. And right now, natural gas costs are too high to be viable for generating electricity that has to be sold at regulated rates. So even the gas-fired power plants that are already built are currently not being used. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah. What are the main sources of gas coming into India? Mainly, I guess, Qatar is the largest supplier of right. gas from the Middle East. So these are essentially three days of transit from the west coast of India, where the main gas import terminals are. So from the Middle East, I would say Qatar and then Iraq. The countries where oil comes from. I think mm -hmm. gas also comes from there. But what was interesting is that in 2019, this is widely believed that Prime Minister Modi and President Trump 
had decided, at that time, I think U.S. gas was quite cheap, shale gas, and so they had decided that it would be a good idea for India to import huge, vast quantities of U.S. LNG. And India even made an announcement that it would increase the share of gas in its energy mix from 6% to 15% by 2030. And a lot of people think that that was one of the ideas of the U.S. Hmm, interesting. And I have to believe that gas import cargoes coming to India, there's got to be a fair amount of intense competition there from demand from Pakistan as well. That's right. Yeah. Yes, because the Pakistan power sector is much more heavily dependent on gas. They need it for their power sector, Yeah. whereas India needs it for the transport and domestic uses, cooking gas and so on. Yeah. So, but oil is an imported fuel. So India is a price taker based on either long-term contracts or spot market prices. And India has some natural gas of its own, but the fields haven't really been properly maintained. So about, about half of it is met from its dwindling domestic gas supplies and the other half is imported. The domestic natural gas is priced according to a formula, the same way that the Indian government underprices its coal in the government companies, so it does with domestic gas. It basically believes that this is a natural resource asset that has nothing to do with international prices. Hmm. You know, this should be made available to Indians at a lower cost. So. It's rationed across the primary users. There's now this new sector coming up called city gas distribution companies. There's also the fertilizer sector, which is a big user. Mm. Power sector, as we said, is not a big user right now because of the end user tariff. So that's basically how it is with the gas. And the city gas distribution, the two main uses are driving. So the CNG filling stations and domestic pipe natural gas in residences and small businesses. Gotcha. They want the cheap gas to go to those two end uses. India has coal reserves, as we said, prices them low to keep the thermal power costs low. At clean energy tariffs of between two and three rupees per kilowatt hour, that's like two and a half cents to about three and a half cents per kilowatt hour are now more or less equivalent to what coal-fired electricity is in India. That's oh, interesting. What it costs. Yeah. So, in fact, a few years ago, renewable energy costs had fallen even below coal. Like, they were less than two and a half. It was maybe 2.2 or 2.1 cents. But now, with the supply chain readjustment and the things we were talking about with the production-linked incentives and the domestic industrial policy, and there's been a cutback in imported cheap solar panels, so the hardware costs for renewable generation are increasing, and the latest bids are reflecting this. So the renewable is transitioning at the moment slightly maybe above coal, but it'll go back down again, we believe. Yeah. In fact, you're reminding me now that way back in episodes 91 and 93, Tim Buckley was explaining to us how renewables had become competitive with coal, essentially. Mm -hmm. But this phenomenon that you're mentioning of sort of a recent rise in the price of renewables related to supply chain issues and also related to the U.S. and other central banks hiking interest rates, that's probably a short-term phenomenon. It's probably you know yeah. good for a year or two, and then at that point, we expect the trends to continue where the prices for renewables just keep falling again. Exactly. I think yeah. that's very, very much the hope here. It's like once the domestic 
gigafactories reach the scale and they're operating and maybe not as much of economies of scale as China, but at least much lower than they are now. Yeah. If the domestically produced hardware is able to reach those prices, then I think it'll once again be competitive with coal. Mm-hmm. And let me just say a quick word about CNG as a transport fuel. Yeah. So the introduction of CNG vehicles on India's roads is nothing new. In fact, people don't know this very much, but it started about 20 years ago. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item zero. Some exciting news broke the day after part one of this interview launched in episode 199, and after this episode was already finished, but I thought it was important enough to insert an update about it here. On May 31st, the Indian government released an updated national electricity plan saying that it would not consider any proposals for new coal plants for the next five years. Instead, it will expand its renewable and storage capacity. The plan is updated every five years and provides guidance on India's priorities in its electricity sector. A draft of the plan, released last September, projected that nearly 8 gigawatts of new coal capacity would be required by 2027. But the new plan proposes to build more than 8.6 gigawatts of battery storage instead. According to the think tank Ember, India currently plans to install 500 gigawatts of clean energy by 2030, which would imply installing 40 to 50 gigawatts per year until then. But the country is only installing up to 17 gigawatts per year currently. So a major increase in deploying renewables, and especially solar, along with the new battery storage capacity, is likely in the coming years. I'm sure it goes without saying that I'm incredibly pleased to see India setting this new direction. Item 1. Southeast Asia has experienced searing, record-breaking temperatures this spring, but they may just be a preview of what's to come this summer. Regional climate outlooks suggest that the coming summer will be hot and dry. 
to prepare for what is expected to be an equally record-breaking demand for power to run millions of new air conditioners, major Asian countries, including China and India, are racing to install more renewable generation, with India targeting 500 gigawatts of renewables by 2030, and China likely to connect 160 gigawatts of wind and solar this year alone. But that may not be enough to meet surging demand in a year of record heat, particularly because the heat and drought are cutting into hydroelectric generation, and that could spell more coal demand. Let's revisit what Mohua said at the beginning of part one of this conversation in episode 199. But why has reliance on coal-fired power been increasing, you might ask? Well, paradoxically, you could say it was related to climate change and global warming, of all things. Hmm. There have been unexpected and unseasonal heat waves in 2022 and 23, with intense summer weather starting a full three months earlier than usual. Wow. Yeah. These soaring temperatures have caused a surge in overall electricity demand. The rising demand for cooling that extends all the way into the evening hours has significantly pushed up the customary evening peak electricity demand, and it's resulted in India's power consumption growing a full 10% in February, even compared to last year. As David Fickling pointed out in Bloomberg, China's fossil fuel generation in May last year was just 3.5% higher than in the same month four years earlier. But in August, thermal power generation was 32% higher. With its hydro production down nearly 8% from the previous year, China has little choice in the near term but to turn to coal to meet that extra demand. As David notes, Yunnan province, which contains the headwaters of the Yangtze River that feeds many of the vast dams China has constructed over the past few decades, has been gripped by severe drought in recent months. And the provincial capital of Kunming has had the driest start to the year since 1985, with rainfall at about 10% of typical levels. Conditions are even worse than they were last year when the nation experienced its second driest summer on record. Accordingly, aluminum smelters in the area that normally rely on hydro output are increasing their stocks of coal. India is in a similar situation with a huge population facing potentially fatal temperatures, sales of air conditioners jumping by another 20% this year, and flagging hydro generation. Parts of Southeast Asia facing parched conditions over the coming months are likewise increasing their coal stockpiles. The situation this year is expected to be exacerbated by the return of El Nino, which can cause dry, inadequate monsoons in the summer and mild weather over the Indian subcontinent in the winter, resulting in reduced agricultural output. So does the fact that Southeast Asian countries currently have little recourse but to turn to coal to help them meet these unprecedented surges in hot weather power demand somehow show that the energy transition isn't happening or isn't working? No, it does not. It just means that the climate is changing faster and weather is getting hotter than our energy systems as a whole can meet. Item 2. Two weeks after we did this interview, former MasterCard CEO Ajay Banga was elected as the new president of the World Bank, raising hopes that the Indian-born finance and development expert would lead reforms at the bank and get more capital moving toward... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. 
Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.